Well, saints, if you would, open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John chapter 12. Now, if you don't have a Bible, please just raise your hand. We'll make sure that you get one. If you don't own a Bible, just keep this Bible as our gift to you so that you can continue to look to the Word of God and and let Him speak to you the volume of His love. But where we are this morning in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John, we covered the portion that the world would declare the triumphal entry last Wednesday. We went through verses 12 through 19, and we looked at it in its context. We looked at it expositionally. This morning, what I want to do is just focus on one area here in verse 15, and where it simply speaks, Behold, your king is coming. And I want to look at this in three different ways. I want to look, first of all, in simply in our text. We want to look at that and see what it entails and, and what it means. And then we want to look at it as far as the season, Christmas. When you are out and about and you can tell people, Behold, our King is coming, as we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we can say, Our King is come. Not only has He come, but He's finished the work that He's come to do. And the last thing that I want to do is just really look at how not only does Jesus present himself as king to the nation of Israel here, there at Christmas he presented himself as king not only to the nation but to the world, but he also, as far as application, wants to present himself as our king. He wants to be a king and come into your heart But then once he's in your heart, he wants to be a king and come into your life. And so that's what we want to look at here this morning. Well, as we look to this, behold, your king is coming. What I want to do is this. I want to initiate this study by looking at a psalm. Psalm 24 is a glorious psalm. It's one of those psalms of David where it begins, the earth is the Lord's and all is fullness. He says the earth belongs to God, but then he says the world and all those who dwell in them. That's how he starts this psalm. The earth and everything that's in it and whoever is in it belongs to the Lord. And as he starts this psalm, he goes now in verse 7, and this is what I want to focus on in Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. Look at at it with me because it simply says, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Understand that in our text as we're looking at, Behold, your King is coming. This is the prophecy that is spoken. And we recognize here that David in this psalm says, just just lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Understand this aspect of who Jesus is. He isn't just the king. He isn't just a king. He isn't just the, the king of Israel. He's the king of glory. He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. And as David here says, just be lifted up and the king of glory shall come in. He answers, he gives you this question. He answers, who is this king of glory? Who is this king that has come? Who is this king that we worship? And then he makes this statement. It's the Lord, strong and mighty, It's the Lord mighty in battle. And so he says again, lift up you everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? He's the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. It's amazing to say he's the king of the universe. He's the king of all the angels. He's the king of everything. He's the creator of all everything. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. We belong to God. We belong to this king. He is our authority. And I love the fact that when we look and say, oh my goodness, behold, your king is coming. Do you know who this king is? 
Is he in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own life, the king of glory? Is he the one that created everything? Is he the one that created you? Is he the one that's saying, just open the doors, open the gates, let him in? How important is that? That before you were saved, people were saying, open up your heart, open up your life to this Jesus, this king of glory, let him in. And we get to declare that in this coming season. We can tell people when when we say, Merry Christmas. Yes, yes, open up the doors of your life. Open up the doors of your heart. Let them in. This is the true gift. This is the greatest gift. This is the gift that God had not only planned and prophesied and, and, and purposed, but recognize that this is the king. There's another portion of scripture I want to just draw it to you. We'll get to it eventually as we continue in the gospel of John. But in John chapter 18, I want to read just a couple of verses. I want to read verses 33 through 37. It simply declares this and makes this statement. When we see here this whole understanding of this king of glory, when we recognize here this, this direction here that Jesus is king. I want you to know that as we recognize him as king, there was a point where Pilate had declared him as king. He asked this question. When there in John chapter 18, verse 33, the first words that Pilate speaks to Jesus Christ is amazing. Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? <laughs> Do you understand? He doesn't say hi. He doesn't say anything. He just comes right to, are you the king of the Jews? Now understand that by saying that's an amazing thing. But here, what was happening when we're looking at our taxes, the people were saying, Behold, your king is coming. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. The king has come. Our king has come. Now keep in mind that Rome wasn't too worried about this coming king. Now if he would come with, with an army, yeah, I'd be a little bit worried. If he were to come on a white stallion, I'm a conquering king, a little bit worried. But this king comes on what? A borrowed donkey. And not just a donkey, a colt. The foal of a donkey, a little tiny donkey on which no man had ever ridden. And here comes this king on a borrowed donkey. And Rome's like, oh, wow, watch out. Here comes the king. He's on a donkey. They're not worried about it. They think he's a joke. But we understand this is the king. And I love the fact that Pilate just comes and says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, Jesus in verse 34 answered, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? And this is a great question. When we declare that Jesus is the king, the question is, are you really questioning that? Are you wanting that? Are you declaring that? Or is someone else declaring it for you? Because when you say Jesus is the king of my life, there's a degree of submission to that authority. Are you declaring or someone else declaring it for you? Are you saying that Jesus is king or simply the congregation is declaring, the Bible is declaring? When you say Jesus is king, are you saying he's my king? Are you acknowledging that? And this is what Jesus does. He asks Pilate that question. He says, are you the king? And I love what Jesus does. He asks him a question back. He goes, I'll answer this, but I want to know, are you asking this? Are you wanting to know this? Or are others the ones who are putting these words in your mouth? Well, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? So he's saying, what'd you do to get here? Why did you make these people so angry? Well, Jesus answered in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. You have to understand, my kingdom is not this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But now, my kingdom's not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? He's still trying to wrap his mind around this. Are you a king? 
Well, Jesus says, you say rightly that I am a king. I love this. Jesus says, oh, yes, I am. He says this, for this cause, to be a king, for this cause I was born, for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. You know what Jesus is saying? You have to understand that I came as king. And this is incredible because we see here that when Jesus comes and and just prior to verse 15 where it says, behold, your king is coming. At the end of verse 14, it says that Jesus sits on this donkey. He sat on it as it is written. Do you understand? It's a prophetic word. It was already declared beforehand. So what we understand that when they say, behold, your king is coming, as it is written, Jesus says, behold, for this reason I was born, for this reason I have come to declare a truth, to declare the truth that I am king. We're going to recognize that this one day, this day here, was was planned, it was prophesied, it was prepared and purposed. And so as we look to this, we say, oh my goodness, I now begin to realize that this wasn't just an ordinary day. This wasn't just a random day. This day, this exact day, where he comes as it is written... He came when it was proclaimed, as it was planned, and he purposed it, and he prepares it. Because what we recognize is this, that God had planned this from before the creation of the world. Truly. There's two passages I want you to just jot down if you're a note taker. The first is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, where he makes this statement He said, indeed, he was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but manifested in these last times for you. He was preordained. He was foreordained. Everything was decided before he even came here to the world. This is what was planned. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, it makes this declaration. He said, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of the life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I love the fact that he says that this life of the lamb, he was slain from the foundation of the world. He's saying that that everyone, even whose names are not written in the book, they're all going to worship him. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. Why? Because he literally was slain. It was already understood. There was a plan that Jesus was going to come to Jerusalem. Now, keep in mind, as he's coming here, this is a coronation. This is an incredible thing that people are declaring Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Why? Because it needs to be fulfilled. Behold, your King is coming. As we recognize, not only was it planned, but we see that here, when he makes that statement at the end of verse 14, he says, as it is written. And then when he declares as it is written, he actually quotes from the prophet Zechariah. If you're familiar with that passage, it's found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And within that, it's an amazing thing that he actually leaves off the first part of this passage, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. John leaves that part out, but he says, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. So as he does this, he, he leaves out, he's just and having salvation, rejoice so greatly. He just says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you, sitting on this donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Zechariah, understand that what we're seeing here is that this event was put on Jesus's calendar, his to-do list, if you will, over 500 years prior to him actually coming to the world. Before he was born, 500 years, Zechariah says, this is it, you're coming, and this is how you come. You are going to come here riding on a donkey. Now, amazingly, not only does the the prophets declare and prophesy how he's going to come, because God had planned this. And so the prophets declare how it needs to take place. Zechariah declares that it needs to take place by Jesus coming on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. But the prophet Daniel, over 600 years, 100 years before Zechariah says how he's going to come, Daniel says when he's going to come. Whether you're familiar with this or not, in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, Daniel does something amazing. He gets a direction from the angel. And as the angel comes, the angel will declare to Daniel in verse 25, know therefore and understand. He's going to say, you have to know this. You have to understand this. You have to get this. Now, what is he saying about knowing and understand? Well, in verse 24 of Daniel 9, he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. He says that there are going to be 70 groups of seven years. That's what he's declaring. And he makes this statement that in verse 25, know therefore and understand from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So he makes in a sense a starting point. He said you have to understand that there is going to be this grouping of 77 year periods. And, and a grouping of seven simply means a week in the Hebrew, which is why they say 70 weeks. And they don't say 70 groups of seven-year periods because it's just harder to, to, to say. But we understand that the meaning of that is true. And he says, okay, so within this 70, you know, groupings of seven-year periods, what's going to happen? He says, sin is going to be forgiven. It's an absolute amazing. There's going to be an end to sin. Sin is going to be dwelt with. With, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. This is going to be everything that the world has ever wanted. From the beginning of Adam, when he was forced out of the garden, when he ate of the fruit, and at that point he was separated from intimacy with God, to the very end of every single man, woman, and child that is ever going to be born. They're going to want one thing. How do I get right with God? How do I deal with the sin nature that is in me and the sin that I've done? How does that become reconciled? He said, well, it becomes reconciled in one way. It's going to be here so amazing that there is going to be a time and a person. It says in verse 25 of Daniel 9, Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. We understand that here, Messiah is going to be cut off. Messiah is going to die. But it says this, but not for himself. Do you understand? He's going to die for others. Now, when it says here, know therefore and understand from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now this, we can't find the actual date in scripture, but amazingly, archaeologists have uncovered it. They have understood that there was a writing on a pillar that dealing with when Artaxerxes gave to Nehemiah the command to go and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. March 14, 445 BC. Absolutely amazing that this is a starting point. 
Now, when you have that March 14, 445 BC, if that's a starting point, then what's the amount of time? Well, it says here in verse 25, no one understand. There's going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks. There's going to be a period of 69 weeks. Within this 69 weeks, the, 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 the question is this. Now, now, how does that play out? Well, you have the, the, the 49 the 434, you have a period of 483 years. That's the grouping. And so within that, within the 483 years, you take it down to the Jewish calendar, 360-day years, it comes up to 173,880 days. It's just a number. But when you take that number at a starting point, March 14, 445 B.C., and you add... 173,880 days, you come to April 6, 32 AD. Now, AD, as you know, doesn't stand for after death. You got BC, before Christ. AD is standing for the Latin, in the year of our Lord. April 6, 32 AD. Do you know what day that was? Palm Sunday. Jesus comes on the very day that Daniel said he had to come. Now, note this, that in all of history... When you're looking at the Messiah coming, there has to be one thing that you make note of, one thing that every person, every Jew needs to make note of, that the Messiah, according to Daniel, needs to come into Jerusalem, and according to Zechariah, needs to come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey, on April 6, 32 A.D., Now, if someone comes on April 7th, 32 AD, guess what? He cannot be the Messiah. There can only be one person in all the world that is recognized as the Messiah. Not that he has to be born of a virgin. Yes, he does. Not that he has to be born in Bethlehem. Yes, he does. Yes, he has to be born of the seed of David. Yes, he does. But he has to reveal himself as the king on April 6, 32 AD, while riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. And guess what? We happen to know there was a guy. We happen to know that this man, Jesus Christ, where it was planned before the foundation of the world, prophesied here by Daniel and Zechariah. And then amazingly, we also see that it was purposed. It was prepared. I want you to see that there in the Gospel of Luke, there's going to be a point where we see that Jesus actually does this thing. He actually comes and prepares and purposes this event. In the Gospel of Luke, beginning in chapter 19, I want to start reading to you in verse 29. Luke 19, verse 29. It came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany on a mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples. He actually says, guys, I got to send you on a little mission here. Now, on this day, he sends two of his disciples to do what? Well, Jesus walks around everywhere. But today is different. Today, he says, I've got to make things right. I got to make things according to the plan. I got to make things according to the prophecy. And so Jesus here prepares this event. He sends out two of his disciples. And what he says is this, verse 30, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Amazing, you're going to find this young colt on which no one has ever sat. And what I want you to do is loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. You understand that there was something that amazingly that Jesus here prepares ahead of time. He tells a man, hey, you know what? You just happen to know me. You happen to have this colt, and there's going to be a time I'm going to send two of my disciples to come get the colt. So when they come walking and they start taking away your colt, and you say, hey, who are you guys, and what are you doing? Just say, the Lord has need of it. 
Just let them have the cold. Jesus here prepares this event. And so, verse 32, so those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Then they brought him to Jesus. They threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. You understand that Jesus here prepares this event. Jesus here literally purposes this one moment in time. Why? It couldn't be any other day. It had to be here on April 6th because Daniel said from the going forth of the command when Artaxerxes told Nehemiah, go, March 14th, 445 B.C., Count the 173,880 days. Boom, April 6th. It has to happen today. I have to ride on a donkey today. And amazingly, he does this on what we declare as Palm Sunday. Now, as we look to this, realize that as Jesus is doing this, he's allowing, he's letting the people declare him as king. In other words, I'm going to come and this is my coronation. They're all going to be recognizing me as king. They're all going to be declaring me as king. They're going to say, Hosanna, blessed is you, comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. Behold, your king is coming. An amazing thing that we begin to see. And so right now, Jesus is saying, I want you to declare me as king. Now, every other time they wanted to make him king, what happened? Remember when we were there in the Gospel of John chapter 6? And there in John chapter 6, verse 15, after he had fed the 5,000, all of the people there, John six fifteen. therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, not only did they want him to be king, but they were going to make him be their king. Listen, you can feed an army. And at this point, what did he do? He just fed 5,000 men plus women and children. And they said, listen, we're going to make you king. We're going to be your army. We're going to come. We can go and we can take on Rome. We got 5,000. You just keep feeding everybody else. You'll get more and more people. Well, understand, Jesus didn't need an army of 5,000. He honestly didn't. Remember there, and I love this passage in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Just jot it down if you want. But it's a great reference because in, in Matthew chapter 6 or 26, beginning in verse 53 or 52, I want to read it in context. Peter goes and he takes out a sword. And he, he strikes the high servant priest, the, 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 the servant of the high priest, is off his ear. He takes that off. And Jesus says, put your sword in its place. For all who take this sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think, he says in, in Matthew 26, 53, do you not think that I can now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Now, that's a lot of angels. Now, keep in mind that in one night, one angel slayed over 180,000 Syrians. He just wiped them all out. One angel goes and says, you're all dead. What could 12 legions of angels do? He doesn't need an army of 5,000 Jews. He can have 12, literally, this is what he says. You have to understand, I can just pray instantly as I want to. And what will happen is this. The Father will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. A legion is approximately 1,000 in, in an army. I can have 12,000 angels, more than that, just by praying. God says, go, bring it on. He says, I don't need this army. And this is an amazing thing. They wanted to make him king. And he went and said, no, there's no way you are going to make me king. My time has not yet come. He leaves. He disappears. You're not going to force me to do anything. But now Jesus does what? Now's the day. Now's the way that the plan of the Father is to be fulfilled in the exact way that it was prophesied. So keep in mind that as the Jews are looking for their Messiah, and they're still, they're waiting for it, ask this question. 
Listen, the Messiah has to come on April 6, 32 AD on a donkey. According to scripture, according to Daniel and Zechariah, the way that it is prophesied. And if they missed it, if they didn't do it by then, guess what? You missed the train. You missed the boat. You can't go back in time and be the Messiah. There's only one man. And when he comes on April 6, 32 AD, riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey, he will do what? He will go to die, but not for himself. And this is an amazing thing that we begin to see where we recognize it here. Behold, your king is coming. Now, when we look at Christmas, and I love the season that we are in because there's a, a, a term that has begun to be spoken years ago, and it was this, Jesus is the reason for the season and how true that is, that we recognize that in this Christmas season that the king would come into the world. This is what we recognize. This is the king has come and, and I love it. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. And we, we declare, oh, come, Messiah. Oh, come, King of Israel. We want you to come. And we recognize the king would come into the world. He would come to live among his people. Now, what's amazing is this. The Gentiles, they would recognize that the king had come. Now, Jesus had come. He was there in Bethlehem. He was born. And guess what? The nation basically missed it. The shepherds came. They saw, but they missed it. And it wasn't until three wise men, three magi came, and they would ask this question, where is he, in Matthew 2, 2, who was born king of the Jews? Where is this guy who was born king of the Jews? The Gentiles would understand the king has come. We've seen his star in the east. We've seen his star. We recognize who this is. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Absolutely incredible. The Gentiles understood that he would come into the world. But not only would the Gentiles understood amazingly here in the gospel of John, when we get to chapter 19, we're going to see that, that, that Pilate would also proclaim this in John chapter 19, an incredible thing. I want to read to you just a couple of verses, verses 19 through 22. We begin to see that here Pilate wrote a title. In other words, he writes on a plaque that's going to be set above the head of Jesus Christ on the cross, declaring his crime. And so what Pilate does is this. Pilate wrote a title and put it on a cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Pilate is declaring that he's, the Magi knew he was king. Where's he who's been born king? Jesus says, listen, I was born a king. For this reason, I've come to be a king. I'm going to be born into this world, but I've come from everlasting to be born into this world. It was always the plan. It was prophesied it was going to be a plan. And I've come into this world so that I could die, but not for myself. Do you understand that here it makes this statement? He says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews reading this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and in Latin. In other words, everyone who would walk by would know one of these languages. They would say, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. This is his crime. This is why he's dying. Well, Verse 21, therefore, the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am king of the Jews. And I love what Pilate's response is, is what I have written, I have written. I have written it down. I'm not going to change it now. This is his crime. This is what, not that he said, he declared, I am king. He told me I am king. I know he's king. And, and at the same time, we recognize here this amazing thing that here's a king who would come into the world. Now, as we come to this point to 
celebrate Christmas to all those who are coming and saying, oh, come, come, Emmanuel, was, yes, the king has come. The king has come into the world. But the king has come. Yes, he was declared by the Magi. Yes, he was understood by Pilate that he was the king. Jesus declared himself, yes, I am king. But understand that what this king, when he came into the world, this gift that God gave was not just to give Jesus Christ, but that God himself would come into this world and pay the price for the sins of mankind. That he himself would be cut off. He himself would die. And he would die upon that cross, taking our sins and the curse and and making it so that it was gone. Jesus would come into the world. Declare this. This coming season. Declare that to all those who are celebrating happy holidays. We get to say, no, this is the holiday I'm celebrating. The king has come. Jesus has come. He's the reason for the season. He's who I proclaim. He who is who I worship. Not only has he come into this world, but you can go on to say that he came into the nation of Israel and they also proclaimed him king. The people recognized in his coronation as it was written, Behold, your king is coming. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name, the very character of the Lord, the king of Israel. And as he has come, we celebrate that. We recognize it. But he comes into Jerusalem. And as he comes into the Jerusalem, the religious leaders are blind to this. They're telling the people, would you... They told Jesus, would you tell the people not to say this? Would you stop them from saying these things? And he said, listen, if I were to stop the people, the very stones would cry out. The rocks would begin to cry out. The the world knows this is the day. It has to be proclaimed that this is the day. Allow the people to declare this. But the religious leaders, in the same way as the world was blind to his first coming, Except those three magi. As the world was blind to his coming, the religious leaders are also blind to his coming. They can't fathom. The people are celebrating, but the religious leaders are saying, no, it's not the way that I think it should be. Yet it was exactly the way the scripture had proclaimed it. Here's he, on this day, You have to realize that if someone is coming on a colt, the foal of a donkey, as Zechariah has proclaimed, on the day that Daniel has proclaimed, he must be the Messiah. And all the people are recognizing it, but the leaders can't see it. And understand that this whole understanding of the kingship of Jesus Christ, as in the coming when he came on Christmas, or as we celebrate his coming on Christmas, when he came to the world, they were blind to it. The religious leaders are blind to it. How much is it just as true that when Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart, he says, I'm coming as king, is the world blind to it? I was blind to it until he opened my eyes and opened my heart and I received him. And then I was able to see. Then I knew. But here the religious leaders, they're rejecting him. And as they reject him, it's absolutely amazing that he would come and he would come not to rule and reign, but he would come as a king, as a substitute, as the authority over all people. And he, as that authority over all people, as the king, as a representative of the people, would die in their stead. And this is why it's important to recognize that not only is he the king of Israel, but he's the king of kings. And he's your king. That when he dies, he dies for the people. Remember when we were there in in John chapter 11. There was the high priest. And it was so amazing that in John 11 verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to him, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient that one man should die for the people. It was prophesied that he would die. It was declared that one man would die for the people. Like Daniel said, he's going to be cut off, but not for himself. Don't you know that it's expedient that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish? Do you want everyone to be separated from God? Or do you want this one man to be separated there upon the cross for just those few hours? 
Because if he's separated and he pays the price, we can all be in a right relationship with God. And so we see in verse 51 of John 11, he said this, he did not say on his own authority, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. He would die for the world. And as we see this, I think it's so important to recognize that this is Jesus Christ. He comes, he celebrated as king, but he comes not to rule and to reign. He comes to do one other thing. He comes to be a substitute. As king, he has authority over the entire nation. As king of kings, he has authority over all the world. And when he dies, he dies as a substitute for the nation Israel and for the world. And no one else can do this except someone who comes on April 6, 32 AD, riding on a donkey. No one else can be this one. And so amazing we see that he comes into the world. He comes into the nation Israel. But understand this. Scripture also declares that he wants to come into your heart. This is where it really boils down to he wants to come into the heart. And then the question is is this, are you blind to it? Are you blind to the fact that Jesus Christ wants to come into your heart? Are you dealing with people who are blind to the fact that Jesus Christ wants to come into your heart? It's so incredible that as we see here, Jesus has made this statement in Luke 19, verse 14. It's just a a beautiful passage, or verse 10. He makes this statement, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I've come to seek those who are lost. I come to save those who are lost. I come to be cut off, but not for myself. It is profitable that one man should die and not the nation. Profitable that one man should die and not the world. One man should be separated from God, that all men could be reunited with God. Because all men were separated because of Adam's sin. All men can be reunited because of Jesus' work. And this is what we begin to see. This is the life that Jesus has come to seek and to save those that were lost. He's come to say, listen, I've come into this world for a purpose. And as we see this so amazingly, this is where that passage in Psalm 24 really should open your eyes again. Where he makes that statement, listen, lift up your head, O you gates. Be lifted up your everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in. Open the doors. And let him in. I love that passage in Revelation 3.20. I stand at the door and knock. Amazingly that he stands at the door and he knocks. And he's doing this what? He's writing to the church. I'm standing at the door. I'm knocking. Open the door. Let me in. Open the gates. Open the doors. And you do and know this. David proclaims the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? Oh, he is the Lord, strong and mighty. He's the one who has power and life. He's the one to say, I want to come into your heart. But then note this. The last is this. Not only does he want to come into our heart, and people are blind to this, but he wants to come into your life. And people are rebellious of this. Remember now, the religious leaders, they were blind. They knew, but more than that, they were rebellious. They wanted prestige. They wanted power. They wanted position. And how many times do we as Christians want power over this one area of my life? We say, God, come into my house. Come into my heart. Come into my life. But don't go there. That room is off limits. That room is kind of embarrassing. That room you don't want to go in because I know your character. And in that room of my life, your character is not there. Just avoid that room. The rest is yours. But is that what the king, is that really where the king is? Is that the authority that he has? Understand that if you let him into your heart, he rules and reigns. He has authority over what? Everything. That's every area of your life, every area of my life. And it's so amazing that here we say, oh, he's the king of glory and he's in my heart. And Jesus says, okay, yes, I am 
in your heart, but I want to be in your life. And then you say what? Well, Lord, you, 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 you can't go in that area because I've been struggling with that my whole life. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I've never had victory over it. Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty. Do you not think that there is anything that he can't give you victory over if you come to him and cling to him? And you're looking to him to give him glory and honor and worship. And I'll tell you what, when you're walking towards glory, you don't want to turn around and look to the depravity of sin. You want to look to his holiness. You want to look to him. And, and, and sin comes knocking at the door. I don't want you. I want him. Why would I settle for you? Dark, depressive, grody, when I could have beauty and light and life. And this is what we do. I love the fact that we recognize, God, you are this king. And when he comes into our heart, realize he wants to come into our lives. And this is the application of when we see, behold, your king is coming. And if your king is coming and you're saying, I'm going to open up my heart, realize this, you also have to open up your life. Jesus, I'm going to go in that room and I'm going to look, because I already know what's in there. I'm not going to look at, oh my goodness, how did that get in there? I know what's in that room, but I'm going to come and I'm going to be the one with authority to what cleanse it. I'm going to take out that which is vile and I'm going to replace it with that which is beautiful. And this is the Lord. This is what he does. This is how he works. Now, two passages I want to just simply use to close us is this. When he comes into your life, two things to make note of. The first is, is this. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, when Paul's writing to Timothy, he says something absolutely amazing. Now, I want to read just a couple of verses. I want to read verses 11 through 15 so you can understand this, this king of kings and the Lord of lords. In verse 15 of, of, of 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, that, that which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's going to manifest these things. But what happens? In verse 11, when Paul writes to Timothy, he says this, 1 Timothy 6, 11, But you, O man of God, flee these things. You understand, as a Christian, God's going to tell you, O man of God, O woman of God, flee these things. Run away from that which is bad. Run away from greediness and filth. Run away from those things that the world pursues. You, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Pursue those things. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So when you say there's a Christ, that you're a Christian, he's saying this, give them some evidence. Give them some proof. If you say you're a Christian, do you think that if you were to tell people, hey, I'm a Christian, they go, oh, right, sure you are. Yeah, you're, you, you're not a Christian. I know what Christians are supposed to be. You're not that. And they know what Christians are supposed to be. Because when you profess to be a Christian, they, they say, why would a Christian say that? Why would a Christian talk like that? Why would a Christian do this? If you're a Christian, why don't you be a Christian? And I love the fact that here he says, listen, if you are a Christian, flee the things that are bad. Fight the good fight. Lay hold of this good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He says in verse 13, I urge you in the sight of God who gives to us all things. And before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you, keeping this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appears, which he will manifest in his own time. He's going to come. He's going to reveal himself. He's come the first time. He's going to come the second time. And when he comes, he will manifest in his own time. He who is blessed and the only potentate. He's the only one with the authority. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. Because he's the king, let him be king in your life. Let those things that are not of God go. Pursue the things that are of God. 
those things of, of, of power and love and life and faith and gentleness. All these things that he says are yours and mine. Know this. Come before the king of kings. Know this. You can do so willingly or you could do so fighting against him. But if you fight against him, let me just, just let you know one thing. You're going to lose. Just in case you never thought of that, you're going to lose. You can't fight against God. Now, now you can try to fight against God, but guess what? You're going to eventually lose. You may have a victory one day or one month or a couple times, but eventually when God says, I want to deal with this now. In the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verse 14, it says this, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. But I want you to understand, you can fight against God and you're going to lose. And, and, and this is where it is in Revelation 17, 14. They're going to make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. You fight against God, God is going to win. Why? He's the Lord of lords, and He's the King of kings. He is the Almighty. He is strong and powerful. And there in Revelation 19, Two verses, verses 15 and 16. He says, now out of the mouth goes a sharp sword, and, and with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fearness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. This is it. He has authority, and he's going to win. So we get to do these amazing things now that we've heard this message, that we can tell people in this Christmas season, oh, behold, the king has come. He's come to rule and to reign. He came to Israel. They missed it. He came into my heart, and I missed it for a long time, but now I've let him in my heart. But then when you let him in your heart, do this. Let him in your life. You can say, don't go here, but he has authority as the king of kings. He has authority as the king of Israel and the king of the world and as your king. And I just want you to know that as we come to this point of celebration, behold, your king is coming. Know this. Open up the doors. As you open up the doors of your heart to do this, open up all the doors in your life. Open up all the rooms that are in your life and let Jesus come and, and remove what he needs to remove. And you're going to find in this Christmas season joy. Joy. Joy because things are no longer things that you need to avoid, but you're leaving those things. You're pursuing those things of God. And you're going to find joy. Have you ever noticed that when you're a Christian, when you're pursuing those things that aren't of God, you feel miserable? You don't have intimacy. But when you're pursuing the things of God, you're like, oh my goodness, I'm experiencing you. I'm experiencing intimacy with you. I'm knowing that you are my king. I'm responding that you are my king. I'm opening all the doors. Come in. You are my king of glory. I want to celebrate you in my life. May that be our prayer. Amen. Amen. Well, Father, we do thank you for this word and for your heart, how good you are, how faithful you are. Lord, that you, through your goodness, you, through your power, would come and reveal yourself in this way. So we're asking, Lord, that as we are coming to this season, help us. Help us, Lord. You give us your spirit. You give us the words that we could speak in gentleness and love to those who are lost, to those who are pursuing the things of the world and are missing the reason for the season. Help us declare those things. But then, Father, as we declare those things, help us to not be hypocrites. To say, here comes the king, but, but he's not king over this area of my life. I've restricted you here. Let us be those who, like David saying, oh, lift up the gates, open the doors wide, and the king of glory will come in. And he will be strong and mighty. He will be strong and powerful. So come and do the work in our lives as we yield them completely over to you and your authority as king. We ask this in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, amen. amen.